Welcome left. This is George G. And the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, strong and powerful Dr. Stephen Furlick. Dr. Stephen, are you ready to do this? Yes, I am. Thanks for having me on, George. Yeah, excited to have you back on. Dr. Stephen is an associate professor of communications at Texas A&M. He's an author. His newest book is Nonverbal Epiphany, Steps to Improve Your Nonverbal Communication. Stephen, welcome back on. Tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, and what motivated you to write the new book. Thanks. So I've taught nonverbal communication for over 10 years at the university level, and I haven't uh, found a book that met all of my needs. So therefore, I thought I might as well write my own for my class. But then one of the things that academia tends to overlook is the general public as well. What can people actually use it? So to try and uh, address both different audiences, students from academic background, that's what I try to do. I have over 700 different sources cited so that there is credible uh, research that goes behind it, but what's some practicality that people could use in their lives as well. And that's one of the big things that was missing was the application. How could people actually use it? And then um, another thing is that I haven't found any books, and this is what I try to do in each chapter. I have an activity at the end that people can actually apply and use what they just read over that chapter's topics. So each chapter ends with a different activity that you can use in real life, because one of the things that I want the reader to take away with is to improve their nonverbal communication, both the way that they display their behaviors, but then also to understand other people's nonverbal behaviors better as well. And so you first start out with um, some sort of background information, but then it's through application that you learn and improve your skills. So for today, I thought I would uh, talk briefly about some basic principles everyone should have in mind, and then um, some specific behaviors that are a bit more universal that applies to pretty much everyone, uh, regardless of culture or context, and then um, a little bit related to finance, and then if we still have time, uh, some persuasion as well. I love it. And before so, you sort of, before you jump into it, I'm just curious. Yeah. And in, in, in is it knowable, the percentage of our communication that is nonverbal? Is there like That's a, a good chart? question. Uh, there's different uh, estimates out there, but I would challenge your audience, this is just sort of jokingly, uh, to find any credible source that says it's less than 50% of the overall communication. So there's various estimates. I haven't found anything really credible that's under 70% and it goes up to like 93%. So somewhere in that range. So I would throw a number on around 80% of our overall communication is nonverbal. I don't know what I would have guessed. I probably should have guessed up front. Um, yeah, I should have asked you that. <laughs> What's your number? <laughs> I, I, I probably would have said between 30% and 50%. And there's and, a lot and of areas that people... A lot of areas that people just don't even uh, take into consideration, like chemo signals and uh, the different types of body odors that uh, we tend to emit, mm. communicate to other people as well, our emotional state. But also when it comes to uh, uh, like relationships and dating, um, more so for the female, she sort of uh, sniffs out the male uh, with the chemo signal. She wants DNA that's different from her DNA to reduce those recessive uh, detrimental types of genetics uh, that everyone has, but most of the time they're not expressed. 
And she does that through um, smelling the different uh, chemo signals that's emitted. So, for example, it's been found in various studies that uh, you could lay out uh, five different T-shirts that a person has wore for several days. And then the female can sniff out, the woman can sniff out and uh, pick out which one's her partner. And then in a different study can pick out which one's her baby as well. So there's a lot of subconscious that people don't pick up on and uh, reactions as well that I'll go into as well that people don't even consider. Well, that's that that's absolutely fascinating. Certainly, we can all think to times where we smelled somebody that either smelled bad or their 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 cologne was too much. Or it's too much mm-hmm. perfume. So that's obviously conscious. But then there's so much from a subconscious level that's happening, too. Or maybe you just uh, in a dating relationship, whatever, where uh, people have a great connection online and then they meet in person. It just doesn't fit. And maybe that's part of it because there's not a genetic uh, match that has been sort of played out through the chemo signals given off. Fascinating. Didn't mean to sidetrack you. No, no, no. That was good. (laughs) Uh, So I guess I'll start out with uh, just a few principles that probably everyone should keep in mind to have a more accurate understanding of nonverbal communication of other people and more. And this is what I think in our society as well, that people lack self-awareness, that they don't really understand how they're coming across and how other people see them as well. So one more just slight sidetrack going on an interview, meeting with clients or whatever else. Instead of looking down at your cell phone, carrying your cell phone in your hand, maybe carry a newspaper instead or a periodical that's related to that industry. And that maybe would set you apart that you're more serious about the meeting as opposed to being sidetracked about something else. So non-verbally what that communicates. Interesting. Just I I'm I've it's so basic to me, but the idea that how you present yourself to the world matters. So the clothes that you wear, the way you carry yourself. And I feel like sometimes we've, we've, we've forgotten that, but what an interesting thing that, that it is carrying your cell phone. If you carried something that's germane to what you're about to do, that makes more sense. Maybe for you, wall street journal or, you know, investors business daily or, you know, something. Sure. So here's a few different uh, principles. I think most people should keep in mind is, they tend they okay so the general public tends to think that my nonverbal behaviors um are a reflection of my emotional state that's true but what they don't understand is that your nonverbal behaviors can actually create your emotional state as well so there's been uh, numerous studies that have found that so uh, one is where they had two different groups and one group uh what's your emotional state in terms of of happiness uh, at the moment and they would just sit there uh, with their normal facial expressions and the second one they would hold a pin in their mouth so when you have a pin in your mouth what's that do that sort of creates an artificial smile and they found out that group two rated a much more positive and happy experience having a pin in their mouth as opposed to just normal facial expressions because it created a smile and that nonverbal behavior created the emotional state. So if you're feeling uh, more negative during the day, just by simply smiling, that could change your emotional state. Have a more open posture that could change your emotional state as well. Here's something that's... Uh, has been around for a little while, 
But the biology is something else that I try to do throughout the book that very, very few nonverbal communication books do is bring in uh, biology as well. So Amy Cuddy, C-U-T-T-C-U-D-D-Y, um, she did numerous studies and on this as well, how your nonverbal behaviors can uh, change not only your emotional state, but your physiology as well. So um, having a power pose where you have your legs more wide open and um, your hands on your hips and your elbows out. She found out that having that prior to a job interview, that decreases not only your cortisol levels, which is your stress hormone levels, but also increases your testosterone levels. And they had two different conditions uh, before uh, a uh, judges of interviews and condition one, just do what you normally do prior to it and walk into the interview. Uh, condition two, you do the power pose without the judges seeing you do it. And then you do the interview and condition two, doing the power pose, you're more likely to be hired and you're rated much, uh, more positively as well by doing that power pose prior because it reduced your stress hormone level of cortisol and increase your testosterone level. So you felt more co uh, confident beforehand. So your nonverbal behaviors created your emotional state and change your physiology as well. I think that that's fascinating and certainly know it to be true. Um, <clears throat> is, is the flip side true? If I'm just sort of yes. hunch, kind of hunched over, that's going to potentially have the opposite effect. Yes. So that would uh, increase your stress level and probably decrease your testosterone as well and probably feel less confident with what you have to say as well. And people pick up on that. And that's what they found as well by those judges that never even saw this happen prior to it. So before a presentation, meeting with clients, interview, whatever, that power pose itself and other types of behaviors can help create the emotional state. Is 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 it known? Has it been thought about, studied, just the average American's posture, how it's changed over time. Obviously we've, 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 we've gotten heavier. Mm -hmm. uh, there are numerous uh, things I cover on the book in terms of posture itself. And I haven't looked at it in terms of uh, time and how it may have changed, but uh, that's a good point with us being hunched over the majority of the day versus walking and upright uh, doing factory work 50 years ago. So the posture itself, I haven't looked into. Here's something that's interesting. Um, what has, on that note, what has uh, been seen as um, attractive? Um, a lot of it has, has stayed uh, relatively consistent, but has changed the nuances. So for example, uh, the female body, uh, um, structure of hip to waist ratio so that uh, the waist itself and the hips are 0.7. Okay, so the hips are uh, wider than what the waist is. The waist is uh, 0.7. That particular body ratio has stayed consistent over decades, but the body frame has increased um, in terms of attractiveness. Um, uh, previously, back in the uh, Marilyn Monroe days, it's still 0.7. But then more recent times, what's attractive is a more thinner type of uh, body type, but the ratio has stayed the same, where you have the hips are a bit wider uh, for the woman, and uh, the waist is a bit uh, uh, in, in, in more. Is that based on 
like the 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 actual physical characteristics of people that are models or used in advertising? Uh, the studies have been done in terms of uh, showing various pictures of people okay. and then what keeps coming up over and over as the most attractive. So that ratio stays consistent, but uh, the body frame itself can change. Um, and that depends upon society. So back in Marilyn Monroe's day, wherever that was, like the 50s or whatever, uh, food probably wasn't as abundant uh, back then. So what is sought after in terms of attractiveness was someone who had more access to food, whereas food is much more uh, abundant now. But the quality of food isn't as accessible now as what's um uh, as, and that's what's sought after is what's that healthier type of look. Got it. Nice. So a few other principles that someone should probably keep in mind is, and this is something that's often overlooked is just don't rely upon one nonverbal behavior. I think in popular culture, uh, people think, oh, because someone rubbed their nose, they're lying or not making eye contact or whatever. But you want to look at a multiple of uh, different nonverbal behaviors. And you're always putting together individual pieces of the puzzle for the overall puzzle of what someone's meaning is. And in that line, the context so what's the situation? What's the relationship of the individuals? What's the topic being discussed? And um, you want to have some sort of understanding of how does a person normally communicate, some sort of baseline. And then if they change from that in terms of, let's say, eye contact, people vary in terms of the duration of eye contact. Some people hold it longer than others. So what's someone's normal? And then if someone uh, breaks from what that normal is, that's probably something to uh, make note of. Is there deception being uh, 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 taking place? And they found that people often uh, maintain eye contact longer when they're trying to be decept deceptive than what they normally do, because they know that pe that's one of the things that people are looking for. And then lastly, one thing that people probably want to uh, uh, keep in mind is that nonverbal behaviors are usually more uh, accurate portrayal of what someone's uh, truly communicating and that people tend to believe nonverbal uh, behaviors much more so than what's being said as well. So it goes both ways. People believe it more and usually it's more truer as well. I think that that certainly makes sense. Nice. So those are just some basic principles to keep in mind. And then what uh, I think a lot of times people have interest in, what are some of the specific behaviors that I could use and identify on, on a daily basis? And uh, I thought that may be the next area that I would go into and address. Great. So some of the different uh, specific behaviors, uh, these tend to be more universal. So there is a bi uh, biological component to it that is not really a choice, it's not really by culture, and it's something that we do for, uh, there's two primary drives behind our nonverbal behaviors for the most part. Um, it's reproduction, so the past iron genetics, and then also survival, so to make sure that we're not knocked off by uh, another species clubbed over the head previously. <laughs> Uh, and that may be why people have uh, speech anxiety is because if a crowd of people are surrounding you, then that's some sort of threat um, because uh, maybe it's a threat to you as well. Previously, you know, uh, generations ago, and maybe that's what uh, stayed with us. Those who uh, viewed it as a threat were able to survive. And those who just stood there and looked around got clubbed ahead and their uh, Brian Soros burger got taken away or their wife or whatever. Sure. So one thing that's uh, meeting with clients or other people that has been universally found um, when it's a friend from foe. So on that note, friend from foe, the eyebrow flash. 
So in less than a second, people, uh, when you meet someone, uh, usually have eye contact first, and then your eyebrows uh, raise and close like that just quickly at the very beginning when someone you uh, like or someone who you see as uh, being friendly. So what's that do? That helps to uh, open up uh, your visual uh, understanding of the other person. So you get a, a better visual field of the other person's face. And it's more of a friendly type of nonverbal greeting. So you can uh, actually train yourself. And that's one of the activities at the end of that chapter to recognize the eyebrow flash of other people to see who's friendly toward you from foe is one thing. Maybe someone who just comes across you, are they really asking you for directions on the street or do they have something nefarious? And then secondly, you can actually train yourself to do it artificially as well because people view that as more favorably and positively with other people. That is fascinating. <laughs> and I, I have pretty active eyebrows, Stephen, but I've never thought about when they go up or, or uh -huh. uh, meeting somebody that I'm annoyed with. It's like, oh, this, this person again, probably uh -huh. I'm, I'm not doing the eyebrow right. thing. Probably your eyebrows are doing the opposite and more of a scowl and or lowered instead of raised. If it's someone you, you're not too happy to see, but you can train yourself if you wanted to, to have the, you know, more positive uh, foot with them. No, I, I'd, I'd, I'd rather people know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so here's the information. Do as it, as you will. <laughs> <laughs> here's something that uh, prior to Corona, you and finance probably used quite a bit. After Corona, I don't know. It's a handshake. So one of the things I uh, cover in there are the different meanings of the handshake. So it first began uh, generations ago, where it's much more of um, you placed your hand on the other person's forearm because you usually wore those uh, long cloaks and you want to make sure they didn't have some sort of dagger underneath to mm. pull out and uh, jab you with. Um, and then it evolved more into the hand itself. And then um, different types of handshakes uh, communicate different things. And I have different pictures to illustrate that as well throughout the chapter. So, for example, uh, depending upon what your attention is, again, if you want to uh, have a bit more of, I'll throw the pun out there, the upper hand, uh, more of a power in the display than you want the person on your left side. Um, if it's going to be side by side, that way you reach across your body to, uh, to shake your hand. And what's that do? That naturally places your uh, palm down, naturally places their palm up. So when you have your palm down, that's a power handshake. Their palm up is more of a vulnerable and a, more of a submissive type of handshake. And that goes back probably uh, through our ancestors as well. What's that do? That exposes that very vulnerable uh, type of vein uh, in, in your wrist that if someone cuts that, it's very difficult to stop that from bleeding. So um, even face-to-face, uh, if you have your uh, palm down and their palm up, that gives you more of a power edge. If it's just uh, symmetrical and both have each palms uh, uh, parallel to each other, then that's more neutral. Um, and then if someone gives you maybe a power handshake where they have their palm down and you're forced to have your palm up, then maybe do a light touch on the top of their hand or on their shoulder. And I have some pictures of that so that you take back the power and it's not someone trying to bully you. And then again, the um, intensity of the handshake as well, if it's uh, very intense and that's more of a power play as well. 
I think we've all experienced that for sure. And it's one of the most annoying things when somebody kind of grabs your hand and sort of turns it down. Like, okay, buddy, let's take it easy. And it's pretty funny. Uh, I don't think I have the picture of it, but everyone could pull it up on YouTube. Uh, when President Trump met with uh, the North Korean leader, how Trump kept uh, touching him on the shoulder, kept doing the power of handshake. Trump always had him on his left side. Uh, and then also he would uh, lead him. So uh, Trump would stand there and then have his hand out to show which way that um, uh uh, Kim Jong-il should walk, and that's controlling his behaviors. You're telling him where to do, what to do, where to go. So trying to establish the power. Uh, and then also going to a smile, a real smile from a fake one. Um, just some uh, specifics of how to tell the difference. Uh, the real smile is longer to create. It's more symmetrical. You have uh, raised cheeks. But uh, probably the, one of the most uh, telling is you have those crow feet. So you have more of the wrinkles around the sides of the eyes when it's real. If it's fake, you do not. And you show more of uh, your upper teeth and you don't show your lower teeth for a real one. So I go through the detail of that to tell the difference between a real one and a fake one. Uh, having a uh, head tilt, um, people tend to have a more positive experience with the person who has a head tilt. They come across as more friendly. And again, maybe uh, ancestry that, uh, that uh, exposes uh, uh, your neck and the vulnerability of that vein. That's another one that's difficult to shut off if that gets uh, uh, sliced. Um, but other people see that as you're uh, showing some uh, vulnerability to them and just having a simple head tilt, they see it as more of a friendly interaction with the other person and rate us more positively. Uh, when you uh, communicate with someone interpersonally, uh, having a triangle. So what's the eye contact? You don't want to break away from too much, but yet you don't want to stare at them too much. So uh, what it suggests is you do a triangle and you look at both eyes. And then you break down to their mouth so that you uh, keep facing the other person and you don't look away, but yet you don't just keep staring with them as well. So it's sort of an upside down triangle, eye to eye to mouth. And then uh, one more thing, and I have a whole list of them, but just one more thing I'll go into. Time, <laughs> uh, pupil dilation. You can actually tell in uh, the Chinese hundreds and hundreds of years ago, Chinese uh, jewelry dealers caught on this pretty quickly. So then they start wearing sunglasses that when someone finds something of interest, their pupils tend to dilate. Mm. So when you first have a stimuli that comes into play, your pupils dilate really quickly, less than a second. And if it's something that you like, they stay dilated. And if it's something you dislike, then it becomes contracted. So if you're looking at maybe in finance, different plans that someone is looking at A, B, and C, their uh, pupils dilate on B. They're most interested in B than they are from A, B, and C. Same thing that's been found that women, their uh, pupils dilate when they look at babies and then attractive males and for males more so with attractive women. And then lastly, I'll, I'll just touch on this, uh, just to relate it back to finance, um, that uh, what's been found in nature itself and in nonverbal communication, and it's been found in the human body, art, uh, history, product, um, uh, how you create a product, logos, uh, the golden ratio. And the one to 1.618 and how different proportions or different distances or different uh, maybe price changes or whatever else, how they're related to each other. And this has been found to be visually appealing 
and uh, it's been found as beauty. So let's say you look at someone's face, and studies have been done with this, looking at someone's face or products, those that have more proportions of maybe the nose to the eyes or the width of the mouth or whatever else, that have more of the golden ratio proportions of different features from each other of the face or the product actually activates uh, the area of the brain that um, is responsible for beauty. So the areas of the brain that accesses beauty itself activates much more so when it looks at the golden ratio than something that is not the golden ratio. Nice. So with the Fibonacci numbers, you start out with zero, one, and then you add the previous one to get the next one. Zero and one is one. One and one is two. Two and one is three. And you go on to infinity. And you can uh, divide any number by the previous one to get to some sort of uh, derivative of one to 1.618. And th- you could, uh, if you're doing technical analysis and price changes, it's been found Uh Decades ago, when it's more natural trading, regardless of what it is, if it's an equity, a stock, or a commodity, or a currency, or a bond, it follows these types of price movements and patterns with larger trends, the 1.618, and then smaller trends you uh, uh, retract on, that'd be the one, and then you go back to the larger trend, this, that, and the other. So you could help time price movements by identifying larger and smaller trends by that golden ratio itself. Love it. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for coming back on. Where can people learn more about you? How can they engage and where can they where can they get their copy of Nonverbal Epiphany? Steps to improve your nonverbal communication. So the easiest way is to go on Amazon and to go to the books category and then just type in my last name, Furlich, F-U-R-L-I-C-H. And then it pops up there. So it's paperback, it's ebook. The ebook's only $9.95. Um, audiobook. And this time of year, the audiobook seems a bit uh, more popular with people traveling and vacations and stuff like that. Excellent. Well, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show Dr. Steven your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas. Pick up your copy of Nonverbal Epiphany, Steps to Improve Your Nonverbal Communication on Amazon. Just go to Amazon, go to books, enter into um, the search for Lich, F-U-R-L-I-C-H, and you will find it. Thanks again, Stephen. Thanks, George. I enjoyed it. And until next time, remember, do your part by doing your best.